First, I just want to define placebo. 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 Do you have any favorite memes, Chelsea? What's your favorite meme? Yeah, I do have a favorite meme. It's, um, it's, uh, you guys are going to think I'm a nerd after this. Um, after this? This is Okay, on three, we'll do five. Hello, listeners. This is Glenn Ostlin. And Infants on Thrones is 10 years old. Now, some of you have been on this ride with me the entire time, and many of you haven't. Regardless, I always appreciate hearing from listeners who have changed over the years, as I've changed and this podcast has changed. We're all always growing from one thing into something else. And it's been an incredible ride. It's still going, of course, but I want to commemorate this 10-year birthday of Infants on Thrones by revisiting some of my favorite infant episodes from the past. And I'll tell you what all of this podcasting has done for me personally. It's made me very interested in mental, emotional, and yes, even spiritual health. This is why I'm in the process of becoming a licensed therapist. It's why I've been working as a life coach for the past few years. And it's why I keep making episodes for this podcast. To rewire my own brain, to reshape my own confirmation biases, so that I can truly look for the good, so that I can truly put down the weapons that I use against myself, and so that I can intentionally focus on putting more peace, understanding, acceptance, joy, and playfulness into this world as much as I can. Now, if you find this podcast valuable and you'd like to say thank you by donating a few dollars per month, please sign up to support the podcast on Patreon. You can find details on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you or someone you love is struggling with severe anxiety, fear, grief, shame, chronic anger, depression, or any mental, emotional, or even spiritual challenges, and you'd like some encouragement, support, and some tools that can help, please reach out to me at infantsonthrones at gmail.com. Let's talk. I am here for you, and it won't cost you a thing. And now, how about a blast from the past with one of my favorite infant episodes from days gone by? Here you go. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything this world has money. Look for the people who will set your soul free. It always seems impossible until it's done. Look for the good in everyone. All right, welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 820, Reflections, Placebo Part 4. And today is going to wrap up the Chelsea-centric reflection series, at least what I'm publishing here to the general public, because I will publish more Chelsea episodes through Patreon which I'll tell you more about in a minute. And it's kind of fitting, actually, because today's episode that you're going to hear was originally recorded three years ago 
in September 2019. So you'll hear us talk about five years earlier when we talked about placebos, which is what you previously heard in this series. But this conversation I only ever released on Patreon. I didn't release it to the general feed. And I, I did that partly because Scott joined us uh, for this conversation, but he was using a cell phone and the audio quality is not great. Not great, not, not great. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. But you know what is great? Chelsea's insights on the placebo effect through the rise of social media. That's interesting, huh? And it was also pretty great to hear from a few of our Patreon supporters, Nathan and Celeste, who also chimed in a few times in this conversation. So anyway, that's your episode today. And I do want to thank all of you listeners who've reached out to me to thank me for reissuing these episodes. And for those of you who asked what Chelsea's up to now, well, I will be interviewing Chelsea later this week. So you'll be hearing directly from her very soon. And you know what surprised me as I went back and I listened? I remembered very well these first few placebo episodes that we did with Chelsea, but I had forgotten how many other discussions that she was a significant part of. So all in all, Chelsea contributed to 16 episodes of Infants on Thrones. In those episodes, we talked about feminism, garments, death, uh, the King Follett discourse, an excellent interview with Margaret Toscano. We talked about the ERA. We talked about excommunication, a manual for creating atheists, biology of connection and then we had a mind-blowing episode called dr science in the wonderful world of woo (laughs) just most of that just flew right over my head but it was fascinating so there's a lot of chelsea material in the backlogs of infants on thrones and since so many of you reached out to me this past week i've decided to create a special chelsea series that i'll be releasing on patreon only over the next few weeks so if you like chelsea and you can't get enough of chelsea and you want to hear more and if you can afford at least one dollar a month to help support this podcast please sign up for patreon you can find the link on the website infantsonthrones.com and one more thing have you ever wished that you could get your tithing money back i mean wouldn't that be cool if you got your tithing money refunded Now, what if I told you that there is a group currently who's actively trying to get their money back through a class action lawsuit, and they could use your help if you're interested in joining them? So if you are, let me ask you a few questions. One, did you contribute tithing money to the Mormon church between 2009 and 2022? Two, did you believe at the time that you donated that your tithing money was being used for good? Not that it was being hoarded or that it wasn't being used for commercial purposes, such as the City Creek Mall or bailing out beneficial life. Three, if you had known that your tithing money was going to commercial purposes, such as the City Creek Mall or bailing out beneficial life, would you have still donated? In other words, do you feel like you were defrauded in any way? If those three criteria match you and you're interested in finding out more about this class action lawsuit, please reach out to me at infantsonthrones at gmail.com and I'll give you some more information. All right? And now... Hang on your your hats and glasses because this here's the wildest ride in the wilderness. Welcome back to Infant Nursery Hour. You want someone to preach to you? With your host, Glenn Osler. You want religion, do you? It's sharing time. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. Yeah. You can buy anything in this world. 
Uh-huh. Hello, Patreon supporters. Welcome back. It's been a busy week for me. So um, I'm just going to give you the uh, raw audio from the conversation that we had with Chelsea uh, about a week ago. And uh, Scott was part of that. He had to call in from a phone, so the quality isn't all that great. We had several of you uh, Patreon supporters who jumped on and contributed. It was great. I think the conversation kind of picked up the further it went along. And uh, it's a good one. So I hope you enjoy it. And as always, thank you for supporting Infants on Thrones. More to come. I, I like that you dropped the word superlative in there. I haven't heard that since I talked with Bob. <laughs> and that's been a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah. Seriously, though, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a little soft, but, you know, it is what it is. Is Chelsea coming in? Chelsea's here. Down? I'm here, guys. Oh, is she? Oh, yeah. hi, Chelsea. Hey. Yeah. So, so I, I think, uh, Chelsea, Scott, um, we're, we're the, the core three tonight. Oh, cool. Tom, Tom was going to, Tom was going to join. In, in fact, um, Tom and I were having this grand debate a month or two ago. I mean, it's been longer than that about the value or lack of value of fictions. And, uh, one of the things he said to me was, um, Oh, you muted it. Dang, I was looking forward to a glorious sneeze there. I watched it the whole time. I, I caught it right I, away. I, I paused and I'm like, oh, here it comes, here it comes. <laughs> but uh, but, but right. Tom said, you yeah, we should, we should have Chelsea come back again. on and, and talk about um, placebos and the placebo effect because he was tying that in with the, the way that fictions can have an impact on your biology. Right. Anyway, and... Um, so so yeah, and that that was a couple months ago. So I, I was looking forward to him being part of the conversation, but he's not able to join tonight. So he's here in spirit. Let, let's let's start let's start with you. Let's just do a little bit of catch up. It was five years ago that we recorded that epic placebo episode, <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple of follow up ones after that. That I don't know if they were quite as epic as the first epic one. But what do you what have you been doing over the last five years? So I finished all the degrees, graduated. Um, and remind us that what were the degrees? Uh, so it's a, a dual PhD in biological anthropology and cultural anthropology from Boston University. And all so right. what that means is just I finished the whole cultural anthropology, you know, requirements, um, comprehensive exam, all that, and then had to do the same thing for bio. So my committee had some bio members and some cultural members, and we had to kind of complete all the different. Uh, elements, basically allowing me to understand how human bodies evolve from a biological perspective, but also the sociocultural stuff that tends to get lost when, you know, we're talking pure bioanth. Um, so yeah. kind of combining the two and trying to really, and that's kind of why I love this subject. I'm glad you have me on. You know, I've gotten four degrees in anthropology and I keep exploring. I'm just obsessed with these ideas and the the idea that something non-physical like a, a belief system or a even if it's relationship, bullshit even if it's bullshit <laughs> can affect your health and I think yeah. and this is the book I'm currently writing is nice. about that and how it's affecting us nowadays with kids and with suicide and self-harm and coping mechanisms and how you know our bodies aren't really meant for this level of sociality that's happening or right. this level of what I call you know context preference meaning 
our kids can be on their phone so much they're not having to in, engage socially the way we used to you know we couldn't go to a movie theater by ourselves or a restaurant by ourselves right now kids are alone a lot of the time because they just change their context by what they put in front of their face and that has an effect on your health and so all of these things i think I'm really excited are coming about right at the time when I think people are starting to take these things seriously. Mm. And so that's the book I'm kind of working on is, you know, teaching people about the placebo effect, but more how it applies to our lives. Nice. Awesome. Wait, what have you been and up then to, Scott? I've been working. Oh, and then you've been working. Yeah. What, what have you been and up to, Scott? Time. Okay. What have you been up to, Scott? Oh, you know, I was just thinking because I have a, I have a distinct memory of mowing my lawn when re-listening back to the placebo episode right after it was published. Oh, five years ago when it was published. Five years ago when it was published. Yeah. And I've been in my I've been in my house like six years now. So yeah, that I, that seems like ages ago. Um, wow, what have I been you, up you, to? You, A lot just working. You weren't still Jesse back then, were you? You you had gone oh, no. from Jesse to Scott. No. Okay. Yeah. 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 So what's different? What's new? And you haven't what's been new? on infants for a while either. I haven't been on infants for a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a really long time. Um, I've gotten into paramotoring. Um, I've got three kids. I, I'm running a, you know, running my own law practice. Um, things are good. Yeah. And the paramotoring, how often do you do that? Oh, I try to go every, every week or two. Every weekend? You're out doing it? If I can. If yeah. I can. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. That's awesome. Cool. All right. So, Chelsea, you, you texted me earlier today that you had uh, some ideas for an outline on, on where we could start and what we could do. And I know, Scott, we talked. You had some notes on, on what may, – may, maybe what we could do is I could ask um, – I had reflections on me five years ago was primarily what I had. When I went back and listened to that episode, it was like – Wow, five years was a it was a different time. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. I'm like I would have a record of yourself five years ago. Right. I feel the same way. I was like I would not say it that way. I would not say any of the things. (laughs) Like what? Now, now I want specifics. What, what, oh, what no, I just felt like, so the outline I created is just like a different way to explain uh, the placebo effect in a layered um, way. I felt like last time we were taught, so the placebo effect has so many different components, and I felt like we jumped right in and we're like debating like component out here and this component and this component, and like they were all so isolated we weren't seeing the bigger picture. And so I think that that's where I was frustrated. I was like, man, I didn't explain it very well. And if I could go back I would kind of explain it a little bit differently and take time to talk about each one of those things and answer questions about each one of those things, but knowing it's just one tiny part of this bigger thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we talked about, we were talking about like the ethics of (laughs) cultural imperialism. (laughs) I don't know if we use those words specifically or not moral relativism. And yeah, we, we, we covered a lot of stuff, uh, on that one. So, so you want to focus mainly tonight on the placebo effect? Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting. Let's go. So what I thought I'd do is just kind of explain that whole gestalt thing, meaning it's this large thing that we can take little pieces of and explain. 
Um, and then I thought we could go one by one through just like the, the major ones. And so as we talk about that one component, I bet you you guys will have examples, things from the past, podcasts, and even real world experiences with those things that we can kind of talk about. And then we'll move on to the next thing. So okay. it's a little bit organized. Does that make sense? Yeah. So as um, long as it's not too organized, because then you've lost me. Okay, I won't be yeah. too organized. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the reason I'm obsessed with this topic is it's really, really, really hard to measure the effect of social things, of ritual, of cultural things, of, you know, do video games really cause violence, right? Do, you know, if you're a member of a church, do you live longer? I mean, we can start to prove things like that, but can, how do can, I can prove? I, can I pause you just for a second, Chelsea, and have you lift up your microphone just a little bit because it keeps getting like little air pops in it. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Does that sound better? Yeah. Basically, to awesome. prove how little tiny moments in our life that we all know throughout our day are these tiny social threats. They're not that big. It's the road rage in the morning or your boss says something a little, you know, a little putting you in your place or your wife um, maybe, you know, isn't as kind or you're these tiny social things throughout our day or on social threat? media, we call threat? it social threats. Or anything okay. that gives you, make you have what's called social stress. It kind of, you get, um, your body starts to stress. You you start to feel unpleasant. You know, we don't have a good way to, to refer to that in a social way. We're starting to use the word social pain, you know, social stress. But it's those things throughout the day that really kind of get our body into this, into this threatened feeling. And we have tons of them, especially if we're on social media. Times when we call it nowadays comparanoia, we're comparing ourselves to others where, you know, I might not, you know, think about my high school or college roommate for years until I got her holiday card. That's how we were raised, right? Nowadays, we're scrolling and we're looking at other people's lives that we admire. And we're comparing ourselves to that. That's a social threat. That's going to hurt you. And so we are constantly having these social threats that are actual stress moments that have physiological responses. And those are the things that are really hard to measure, but that I believe are causing severe social and health problems in our world today. And that those, our bodies were not meant to handle on that scale. And, and no one's really studying this, the effect that this social media is having on our health. And I just feel like the, it doesn't make a ton of sense when we're talking about the placebo in like a drug trial, but when we really add all these elements together, it's basically just the effect of something non-physical, like a social interaction or a, a meaning or a belief system, but that it's having on your physiological body based on how we perceive the world. And I think that, you know, uncovering that and parsing that apart is really important. So are, are you, are, are you setting the stage right now and you're saying that, in, in talking about placebos, traditionally we're talking, and I think in the, in the previous discussion five years ago, you said an in, in, inert substance is having a, an active impact on the body or it's having a, an impact on the body as if it, instead of inert, it was active. And you're saying, right. let's, 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 let's not get away from that, but let's also include other non-physical Yes. Um, so it doesn't have to be a substance, an inert yeah. ritual, an inert. I mean, we've done sham acupuncture where they don't actually put the acupuncture in the right place. We've done sham Reiki where someone that's not trained, you know, we've done sh sham doulas. So isn't, isn't any, Reiki itself just sham? Yeah. Like there's, 
I want to. I want to be the the arbiter ah. between. Or I want to meet the arbiter between sham reiki and real reiki. That's the guy. That's the guy we need to have on. Is I can introduce you. I can actually on. get you a podcast with him. So. Oh. Yeah. I, I I think I yeah. I think that's like the leprechaun version. That sham reiki. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's bad. That's really bad. Sounds like an infomercial. Yeah. So you you defined it perfectly. It just doesn't have to be a substance. It could be anything kind of what we call inert, but that has a physiological effect. Like think mm -hmm. of that in the broad context. It's insane. Well, like like beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so when I was listening back to the old episode, the original one, there was one comment that maybe kind of a throwaway comment, maybe not. I, I don't really know, but I wanted to ask you about it at some point and kind of what you're talking about right now seems to be on point. So at one point you said something about memes, about Dawkins, you, you disagreed with Dawkins on memes, memes specifically. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot is, is the prevalence of our meme culture, especially in context of social media and and how that affects things and affects people. Do you have any new thoughts on that or anything to say about that? Um, well, I think for our new listeners or anyone that's new, like what Scott's referring to is memes, not in the way we refer to them currently, right? These little um, memes that get passed along. Dawkins was trying to equate uh, little packets of cultural knowledge pass along the same way that biological genetics pass along. I mean, he was well, making no, no, he wasn't saying that he wasn't making an equivalency. He was making an analogy, but it but it would it would include the memes that we. Could you give me an example of what Dawkins means when he says a meme? Yeah, so like like one of the earliest ones was the Kilroy is here. So that little drawing of just like a guy's face, and they'd write Kilroy is here, and people just started putting that on things. And then it got shared around and went other places. So he would he would define a meme as something like a a unit of of cultural communication. Something and like so that. So our memes are are exactly part of that, but they all memes don't encompass that, right? That's just like a nickname sure. we've given to one specific packet of information. So the only thing I disagree with is the process. The process th through which biological organisms spread is very different than through which cultural organisms, or, or we can't say organisms, cultural packets of information spread. It's a very different delivery system. It spreads completely differently. And there's a lot more purpose-driven, especially as someone who works in marketing and advertisement, there's a lot of, of manipulation by certain people in the way that memes are spread from PR to marketing. And to me, that's very, very different than natural biological um, modification over time. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't ever understand Dawkins to say that it was the, the same process as biology. I don't think that's what. So what, 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 is the, what, what is the issue that you're asking about? What, what is it that you thought that Dawkins was saying about memes? Are you asking me? Yeah, Scott. What I thought Dawkins was saying about memes? Yeah. Dawkins or, was kind of the one that came up with this analogy that like memes are, are like, I, I don't think he was saying that memes are the same. I think he was saying memes are analogous to organisms, organisms in the sense that people, humans create, come up with something, create something cultural. And the culture, the way that we pass down cultural ideas is similar to the way that genes are passed down in that some 
are propagated and some are not propagated. And there's always doing like a survival of the fittest of ideas sort of. or me- yeah, memes. Yeah, essentially that's kind of what it came down to is like a, a cultural um, evolution of, but of discrete ideas. And so he was trying to talk about it in terms of like not big cultural ideas necessarily, but, but smaller individual packets of, of information, you know? So like the, the memes that we're familiar with all kind of run on a theme, right? So when you see a, a scumbag Steve or a, whatever the different names are for the memes, you sort of already know where it's going. And so then that gets replicated out culturally through different people. So I don't know that there's any disagreement there or anything else to, yeah, I think that I think that, that there's better cultural evolutionists that actually explain process much better. And I think Dawkins, I just don't think the processes are similar only because of the amount of interference that goes in from lobbying to advertising to whatever that goes into actual things and messages, cultural packets of information being spread. It's often been people in power spreading messages, you know, propaganda, etc. So I just kind of I, I think it's a little different. And and you know people don't even understand the process of natural selection very well you should be surprised how many people even can define it so i'm like oh it's not the same as memes being spread but it's such a minute like you know thing i think it's interesting though i think that you know it, it's do you have any you favorite just... memes chelsea what's your favorite meme <laughs> yeah i do have a favorite meme it's um it? it's uh, you guys are going to think I'm a fucking nerd after this. Um, after is... this? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the how press degrees, conference. How many degrees did you get again? No, <laughs> it's that press conference where it's all the microphones on one person and like one little microphone on one and like the guy's kind of depressed and it's dinosaurs with all the things and it's all of other paleontology. And it's this beautiful, <laughs> it's this funny meme. And this woman at this TED conference gave this amazing talk. I hope it goes live someday in Edinburgh. And it was about all the other life forms besides dinosaurs that have been on Earth since the dawn of time. And it was like the giant sloths and these crazy creatures under the, you know, in the ocean. It was like the vast, um, just mind-blowing animals that have existed on this planet and like we only talk about dinosaurs so it's, it was funny awesome <laughs> love it what, what's your favorite meme scott oh my favorite meme i really like if you can call it a meme um the uh, i'm gonna butcher it in german your untergang the um it's the video the video that people dub over all the time where it's Hitler arguing with his generals in the bunker. Um, oh. You know what I'm talking and, about? And, and people just, uh, like, they, they, they uh, use it to talk about how yeah. University of Arizona football sucks or how the, the ending of Lost yeah, didn't like, make any sense or people yeah, use that X, thing. And, yeah, I've seen yeah. ex-Mormon versions of it. I've seen oh, right. forced versions of it. I've seen, yeah. I've seen all different variations of it. Um, but and I've watched the full movie, and the full movie is really hard to handle. Like, 
it's brutal. But if the scene is from when Hitler and, you know, he's, he's just in the final days of holding out. And so he's just this absolute most desperate and screaming at people. So it's just, a, it's a great platform for interjecting all kinds Insert of your own nonsense here. Yeah. 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 People are interrupting him. It's just, a, I love it. It's great. Any, anytime a new one of those comes up on something, it's like, all right, you got to watch that. Yeah. Cool. How about you? I, I don't, I don't have a favorite meme. It's the, it's the Nazi one. It's the Hitler one. I like that one. I'll go with that one. Okay. I, I think I'm a little. I, I think I'm a little too old for the memes thing. Oh, okay. Do you, you get know. them? Do you think I, they're funny or just like? Uh. Sometimes. I, I mean, sometimes, but but mostly I'm just kind of like, eh. No, but I, you know, it's just a I generation. I like studying thing. my teenagers and memes. I yeah. like studying what they spread and why. And my amateur anthropologist perspective is the meme that our kids spread right now, I think it's um, sending an emotion. It's like an emoji, but live. So you're able to capture like cringe. You're able to capture like, oh my God, you know, you're able to kind of capture a snapshot of an emotion that's even more realistic than the emoji. Mm. And it's like, yeah, and they connect on that. And I've noticed that with myself that a lot of times it's a face that everyone in the world relates to. And I think that's kind of cool as the memes spread. Like, I think that's a much better way to analyze memes. It's like, how many spread? Why is that a universal that, yeah. that emotion, right? And can we catalog that? And then what memes don't spread, but spread huge in this one culture? That's really fascinating, you know? Yeah. I think if I would have stayed in academia as a folklorist, I probably would have rivaled you for nerdiness on the memes. But I didn't, so I don't. <laughs> Is that your backhanded way of calling her a nerd? I was just, I'm just validating what she said earlier. Restating, validating. Perfectly fine being called like a nerd. Yeah. I will own that word happily. Yeah. So can I ask I you a nerd. question? Oh, we've got, we've got a listener question from Nathan. Sure. So if memes are spread like natural selection, then is advertising basically analogous to artificial selection or breeding of ideas? <laughs> this is great. Great question. In fact, Nathan, I was just thinking that in my head as we were talking about that, if we're doing analogies, modern advertising industrial complex would actually be more like intelligent design because that's what intelligent design people um, believe is that there's something controlling the processes of natural selection and that, that, you know, that's what we would think of as kind of the advertising and marketing, kind of controlling what messages get out, the PR industry, et cetera. Like, like uh, that uh, Amazon Prime series, The Boys. Did you guys see it? Exactly. That is so good, right? And, yeah. and also like horrifyingly. Yeah. Violent. But that, I mean, that's that like intelligent design. We're going to spin the message. We're gonna, like very top down. This is all designed. Like we, we are manipulating your emotions and you're fueling our power. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's kind of how really good scientists, um, even the guy from Ferris Day Bueller's, you know, the Ben, what's his name? Ben something that's like Bueller. Ben Stein. Bueller. Ben Stein. So he did this movie about intelligent design. He's a pretty in, like intelligent person. And he was Nixon's speechwriter. He was in Nixon's White House. 
right? I mean, it's interesting, but at the end of this movie, it's basically like, I understand all the principles of evolution and natural selection. The only thing we differ is that, like, God's controlling it. I mean, at at this point, they they can't really compete with ideas. We're not seeing new theories proposed. We're not seeing, you know, there's total agreement with most scientists. It's just whether or not God is directing it or manipulating it. Or is it? I don't know. I just threw that one in. So, so let's, let's go back to your outline, Chelsea, <laughs> where you wanted to go with placebo because all, all of these things and even like intelligent design, when people get attached to these certain beliefs, there's this, cognitive bias that kicks in and i think that cognitive bias or, or is that what oh no um confirmation bias the confirmation bias is probably a very powerful um influencer when it comes to placebo effect it's one of the strongest so especially if you really love and respect someone and i think that's the fuel that basically spreads mlms um if has anyone here seen the new showtime becoming a god in cal in florida with kristen Dunst. Oh my goodness. Watch it. Um, It's it's all about MLMs and social manipulation. And and it's it's like a sitcom series or comedy or drama, drama, almost like a Fargo-esque. It's new. She was good in Fargo. It's a little kitschy. I loved her in Fargo. Yeah. But what I love about it is it's really kind of showing those social relationships and how to be in and out and how to recruit someone and manipulate them socially. And I'm not saying that that's what all MLMs are doing. I'm saying what they've mastered is the fact that a, a recommendation by someone you trust is one of the most powerful placebos. In fact, I think I said this last episode, but they um, have done studies for different heart medicines and statins and, and cholesterol, there are certain ones for certain races and there's certain ones for certain ages and there's certain ones for certain um, genders. So there's specific ones that an African-American woman over 60 should be taking versus a younger 40-year-old white male, right? And, and the science has proven that, okay? That's millions of dollars of testing and science to prove that. But then they found this whole other side that if this woman, this African-American woman over 60, has heard about a different drug from a friend she trusts, she will do better on that drug based on that recommendation than all the science saying that she's more likely to do better on this one. And so we have even that detailed of science on the power of suggestion, they call it, um, but of this ability to basically, um, you know, to to trust someone so much that your body begin, begins predictively responding as if that thing is accurate. And, and uh, you, you, would you say that that's an, an example of confirmation bias? Be- because the, the, the trust is there, the expectation that what they're telling you is going to be correct is there. So then you kind of focus on, you, you, you find or maybe even create for yourself confirmation that that bias that you had, that trust that you had in them is going to be true. And even at a biological level, that can manifest itself? That is a great question. I think that it's kind of opposite of that, if I'm understanding you, in the sense that I believe, um, and and we're going to get to this a little later, this idea of pleasure and pain. So when someone agrees with us, it feels good. When something is cognitively dissonant, it feels bad. Or when someone disagrees with us, it feels bad. And so when I think of confirmation bias, I don't think as much that it's a mechanism out there in the world. I think more of people like their own ideas to be confirmed. It feels good. Yeah. And so we tend to stick with people who 
have the same thoughts as us, the same ideas as us, because we have less of that friction throughout our day. And yeah. so I think it's more our own abil- uh, inability to live with unease. Okay. We don't like to feel that way. Well, the, the reason I'm interested in it, and I love that we're kind of 30 minutes into this, and the word Mormon hasn't even come up once, and that's kind of an indication of, so where are you now five years uh, away from that last conversation? Um, Sounds like a victory for Satan hasn't come up yet. What's that? A victory for Satan? <laughs> a, a major victory for Satan. Excuse me. A major victory for Satan. You're going to have to explain yeah. that to me. Is that a meme? That's a meme. Oh, that's not a meme. That's a quote. That's what Nelson said that the, the church being called Mormon. Oh, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was okay. A I'm trying to. Major victory for Satan. Yeah. So. Yeah, so you can't say that anymore. That's like a derogatory term. That's like the M word. So I just scored a major um, victory for Satan by invoking the word Mormon. Yeah. 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 In fact, you just can replace major victory for Satan in, you know, <laughs> where anywhere else you would have previously said the M word. Um, All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The ma- major victory for Satan, the book. <laughs> the yeah, the musical. Yeah, the musical, right. But yeah. the, the, the book of major victory for Satan, the musical. I got gotcha. you. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm tracking with you. But, I, but the, the, the reason that this idea is interesting joke. to me is... Hold on, because, hold on one second. There was a joke on Colbert last night Yeah. about the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and it's not called that anymore. For real? What do they call it now? The Choir at Temple Square. And what was the joke? But yeah, what was the joke? Oh, he was just like com- making a comparison to something, something like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. You know how people, like non-Mormons, will just use that as a reference for like they don't have tattoos or they're really uptight or something. It was some reference like that as a joke. So Stephen Colbert... Mormons, so- Mormons weren't really part of it. It was just sort of a reference in the joke. Well, I'll have to go and find it. Interesting. Yeah. Um. The, the, the reason I'm interested in this, in this connection between confirmation bias and, and the placebo effect is because there's, there's, I've, I've always found it very interesting how the, the, the Mormons who are strict believers always find ways to confirm their view that the church is true. And it's when, not just Mormons. Uh, right, right, right. Of course. And, and when, when people leave the Mormon church, which is just Mormons, because you wouldn't leave the Mormon church if you weren't were. So I, I got you there before you could even correct me. But ex-Mormons also will find what they're looking for, the confirmation to their bias that the church isn't true. And so you, you get these faction wars. The church is true. The church is true, which I think is just, it, it's an indication of confirmation bias. They're, they've got their blinders on. So they're seeing only those things that confirm what they've already made up their mind about. The church is true. The church isn't true. Um, and blind to everything else that's there. And I, I think that then does have an impact on y- your worldview, your paradigm. I think it has an impact on your biology. I, I listened to this audio book a few months ago on epigenetics and how different beliefs or feelings can actually flip on or off genetic switch switches and you know so we we look at this thing that we came out of in mormonism and it's really easy to go oh it's just a bunch of bullshit it's not true 
but then you, how, like, what does true mean? Does that mean that it's effective and that it actually does what it says that it's going to do? And if you have a confirmation bias that it's true and you're going to find ways that it, then you're, you're going to embody the truthfulness of it in certain ways or on the other. So, so that, that's an interesting question to me. I don't know if it's part of your outline or not. Chelsea, it's literally the first thing. Is it the first <laughs> yeah, thing? that's the and After you just memes. explained it perfectly, which okay. was that you know the first part of like one we're talking about all the different components of the placebo effect. Well, the first part that everyone has to understand, and we can then talk about this for a little bit before we move on, yeah. is that context matters. Mm. So you know these are the cues that our body uses to kind of read the room and make decisions. And we'll talk about what that means for your health a little bit longer down in the conversation. But the idea is that your your mind reads your current situation and decides how many, you know, how am I going to react to this? Is it, is it a threat? Is it positive reward or not? Your body is trying to figure out and everything impacts that. So they've done really good studies on like um, people feel have greater placebo effects when you give them an injection versus when you give them a peel because pill because it's more painful um if you do like an alka-seltzer type effervescence when you make a product people think it works better if you say something's a hundred dollars versus ten dollars if you give it a bigger price tag people actually think it makes them better there's a so little are, are placebo you, effect are, are, you, are you saying in the case of the injection because it's doing more like there's this there's this belief in these cases that having direct contact with the bloodstream is going to have a quicker effect than if you swallow a pill and it takes a while to digest. And so because people might be aware of that, they would think, oh, because this was this placebo was injected into me. They don't know it's a placebo, but they think it's going to have an impact more. So it does. Same with the effervescent bubbling up. They see that there's this chemical reaction. It's doing something. They're like, oh, so that's going to have a, a reaction exactly. in me. And almost like a, not, not like sleight of hand, but but kind of like I'm seeing the things that I would yes. expect to see for something that is effective and that yes. makes it the potential impact stronger. A thousand percent okay. correct. Right. And what we're talking about with all these examples is just that can happen in multiple ways. So if, if, if Scott came to you and I came to you and we're both trying to sell you something, your trust for Scott is probably different than your trust for me. And you would respond completely differently in both of those situations, even though you're, we might be selling you the same thing. It's how much do you actually trust the person selling you? Now, this is really complicated because we're kind of talking about it in medical situations and then we're pulling it out into social situations. But the whole point is I want you just for one second to think about how you feel in like, think of the biggest, nicest, fanciest hotel you've ever been in and how you felt in that room for a second, just your body. And then think of being in like a gross, like hoarder's house where there is just shit piled everywhere and maybe even actual cat shit on the floor and it stinks and it's disgusting. And like, imagine just sitting in that for a while and how it makes you feel. Um, this ability of our bodies to, to read a situation and respond and that response is trying to teach us something doesn't ever turn off. And yes, it happens in medical context and yes, we can measure it when we're actually doing really small, you know, neurobiology, but this ability to be um, basically adaptable to our environment happens 
all the time and we could sit here for 10 hours talking about the little ways that we can tell when our context changes and how our bodies react and the idea is that certain rituals and certain doctors and certain you know uh, marketing execs are able to understand that relationship between a context and your body and is able to manipulate that to get you to feel a certain way and do a certain thing so yeah. for example coca-cola the happiness ads and this is the last thing i'll say and we can open it up on this topic but you know coca-cola picks things it's genius i think they're genius in the way of understanding human um, emotion and sociocultural signal you know they pick something that universally is loved like pizza or movies or popcorn and they associate themselves with them so so you know, you love this. You'll also love this. Subaru does that with dogs. Have you noticed? Yeah. You know, every time you go to the movie dog. theater, you have to sit through this. Like, yes. this is our student film where we made a free commercial for Coca-Cola so that we could, yes. you know, and it's all this like happy, smiling, pretty people yes. on this, these dates and big close-up shots of the yes. Coke and the popcorn and all that stuff. So, And yeah. they did a whole campaign of just kissing. Everyone loves right. kissing. And it turns right. on your mirror neurons, right? And right, it, right, right. So like they're great at being able to shift your context. Same way horror movies, on the other spectrum, same way horror movies are able to do that. Um and so that's the whole point of this first section and we can talk all about it and you guys can ask questions or whatever. It's just the idea that like, um, we, we call it the umwelt. I don't yeah. really talk about that last time. Yeah. We talked about that before. But your umwelt is your felt universe. The ability of your body to actually feel and respond to what's around you. And there's some really good research in the umwelt right now. And, and the whole point of this first thing is that from humans to context to smells to um to relationships every one of those pieces has a different effect on you and then in gestalt combined that can absolutely change your 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 physiology and then what if it's manipulated think about that times 10 right yeah. and so that's kind of the main part of what starts a placebo is that every little thing has an effect on your body so I've got two things I want to say, because you, you mentioned mirror neurons, I freaking love talking about mirror neurons and the umwelt. Do, do you know David Eagleman? Um, is he the Stanford professor? I don't, I don't know. I don't I know. know. I just saw, I've, I've seen, I've seen a Ted talk that he does and um, I've got a book of his that I've listened to um, and he talks about the, the umwelt and I, I think the percentage that he gave of like, all of the things that are around us in the environment, we're, we're only able to perceive about a tenth of 1% or something like that of all, you know, and like our umwelt, what we're able to perceive is different from a dog's umwelt because we know they can hear higher frequencies. And like when you start understanding, like we are these creatures that exist in this world that only are aware of a small fraction of what's around us, that that's an interesting proposition all by itself but what you're saying is that within that small fraction of things that we're aware of that that that's one factor in all of the other things that can start the domino effect of a placebo effect like like you expect to see bubbles um in an alka seltzer thing and so you see those bubbles or the needle that's penetrating your skin and well let's let's build that so let's yeah. say i'm trying to create a new product if i make it effervescent 
I'm going to increase the placebo effect. If I make it a certain color, they've, they've proven this. I'm going to affect the placebo effect. If it has a brand name that people trust. So an Excedrin always does better, even if it's a sugar pill Excedrin, than a non-branded sugar pill, right? So that brand has an effect. And they've actually layered this. They've tested doses, if you will, of placebo effects. And that's some of the coolest research out there on placebo is they've dosed kindness. Yeah. How much kindness leads to a placebo? How much touching? How much listening? How much, um, you know, um, what different colors and different cultures? I mean, they've been able to kind of really test these things out. So if you really think about how you experience the world as all of these different layers of effect, it kind of makes you see your context a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So Chelsea, I have a question for you about metrics. So when you're saying that there's Let's, let's go back to your example of, of the uh, Lipitor or Crestor, those medications that affect cholesterol. Um, so if I measure in a person who's getting a placebo their uh, amount of uh, cholesterol in their body, and they're feeling like they're getting an effect, does their, does their cholesterol actually go down, or does their uh, mental health is that the effect? And so is it really affecting what its target is? Or is it really just a, an effect about feeling better? Both. So, so let's say that I go to a population in the Amazon who's never heard of cholesterol, and I give them a sugar pill and tell them it will make them feel better. Will that affect their cholesterol? So... If you're talking about um, FDA-approved medicine, then yes, because you can't put a drug on the market until it's past the placebo trial, meaning it has no, to talking, be I'm better. About, I'm talking about a sugar pill. So your, 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 your uh, original argument was that there's an effect, a physiological effect, on just giving somebody this, this medication, even though it may not have a, a, a true it may not have a true effect in reality. It's not, it's not, it's not active. It doesn't have an active ingredient. It's inert. Okay. It's inert. So we're giving so, them an inert cholesterol pill and to people who don't understand cholesterol. Exactly. So, so you, you're, so I, I, if I understood correctly, you said if you give it to somebody who understands that they're getting a cholesterol medication, then it will affect their cholesterol, right? It will lower their cholesterol by just feeling that they're getting it. Right. So it, it does depend. Um, this is why it gets really, really complicated when we get down to the neurobiology. There are certain medications that, yes, will in fact um, operate on the exact same body systems as the active medication because of predictive. Um, there, meaning that if it's a cholesterol pill and it's a cholesterol sugar pill, the sugar pill will affect cholesterol. There are also... Um, what does that More mean? What is, what is cholesterol sugar pill? Sorry. What is it's, a bad, sugar? I, I, it's a bad example. So let's say um, ulcers. It's going to cause an ulcer or something, right? Or if okay. you tell someone that they're going to take this pill, they're probably it'll make you get nauseous. They're more likely to get nauseous. Okay? It's your body predictively responding to that side effect. So if you give people two sugar pills and you tell them this one's likely to cause headaches and 
pill B is likely to cause nausea, people in, in group A will experience more headaches, and people in group B will experience more nausea. So there is targeted effects that can happen via suggestion. Um, there are also what we call more palliative or more general effects. You know, there's multiple different types of general effects that can happen, like increasing opioids. That just helps pain relief. You know, it could be it could be an increase of oxytocin because you had you bonded with your doctor or something. So there are these other parts of the ritual of medicine or feeling cared for by getting medicine that automatically helps people, even if it's they don't get any placebo, just signing up for the trial they've shown already helps people improve a little bit. And that's the next thing we're going to talk about, which is health resource allocation. But before, but, before we go on to that, though, Jill, I, I just want to go back to what Nathan said, because I, 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 I think what, what you talked about with context, Chelsea, really applies to, to the way that Nathan framed the question. Because Nathan, if I understand what you said at first, you, you were saying, you, you, you have a sugar pill, it's a placebo, you give it to someone in Africa who doesn't know anything about cholesterol, um, and will that improve their cholesterol? And I, I, think, I think what that example did was it, sa it said they don't have any context to create any kind of expectation that this sugar pill is going to do anything for them. And <clears throat> what Chelsea was talking about earlier is if, if, there, if the pill is a certain color, or if the person that's giving to them is someone that they trust, like a, a witch doctor, as opposed to somebody that they don't trust, like an enemy, you know, like all of these different factors. How do they go explain into, the pill? They have yeah, to explain it yeah. somehow. That all will have an effect. Yeah, and so so all of those factors would go into what the potential impact could be. But it's all. But when you're talking about placebos, you're you're also talking about like large populations where there's a. a a higher percentage in one and a lower percentage in, in others. And it's not like every single person that's 100% effective. It, it, it's maybe 10 or 15% more effective than not. Right. I mean, we were talking about significant, what, what, what's the term? There, there's a term where there's got to be some kind of statistical variance, statistical variation. Yeah, statistically significant. Yeah. yeah. Statistically significant. Yeah. Um, but so, so I've got a question. Chelsea, that's kind of along these lines. Something I've been thinking about lately. So, tell me, could, could it can it work in reverse? Like, can there be a? Um, so, th this is my example. Is is when I something I remember you saying before was that um, placebo effect is released in in some context or in some part based on to the the extent that the person actually believes that the thing they're doing is causing one thing or another, right? Like the person's belief is important to the effect. Absolutely. Is that fair to say? Okay. So what I'm thinking about is something that we maybe um, know to be harmful, like say the, the vaping thing that's going on right now, where there's suddenly all these people that are having immediate health consequences. So what I'm thinking is if there's millions of people out there who've already been vaping and then suddenly their belief that vaping is super fine and safe and like it's okay, if that shatters overnight, then is all of a sudden sort of a prophylactic placebo effect that was in place already. No, is that a nocebo? A nocebo, exactly. there we go. Yeah, a nocebo that then is, um, you know, eliminated and, and could, be, could cause health problems because people start realizing, you know, that it's, physically a uh, bad idea. 
Absolutely. That's absolutely proved that been proven, not, not that specific case study, but case studies like that for sure. And I think that's why, you know, if we understand the power of suggestion and the power that we're talking about, I mean, to get a drug approved, it takes millions and millions of dollars just to like beat a placebo. You know, it is a very powerful thing to, to create a context in which we're convincing someone's to do something or to feel something or to think something. And how often is that used for negative? Right. And I look at, you know, now I'm like anti all organizations because at some point someone's manipulating someone and someone's benefiting from someone. And it's just kind of like <gasps> overwhelming sometimes and, and frustrating at the same time. I think it's often used for wrong. Like, like when you say that's anti-Mormon. Right. <laughs> What, what do you mean by that, Celeste? Uh, well, when, I mean, there's lots of books I would have read. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they, totally. you kind of get this impression that some books, like you're not supposed to read Sunstone, you're not supposed to, um, all those kind of things that they would uh, talk about in church or you would kind of hear about uh, Fawn Brody's book or something. Um, even this power, this weight yeah, of, of that yes, anti-Mormon and you, you can't, you can't see it. But then later, some of the things, if you read them, you think, huh, <laughs> that is, that is different than what I thought they were saying it was. And then think about, so I always think physiologically, you know, think about, you know, I remember when I was first getting married just people prepping me for sex. Cause you know, we were, I was virgin, I was Mormon and people saying really strange things, you know, kind of negative. And, and how did that preoccupy, you know, my experiences? I don't know. Right. Or let's even say, you know, childbirth, we know that your expectation, your conditioned response, your, your past experiences with childbirth, meaning things you've seen on TV, things you've, you know, experienced in, in, in health class, things that your parents have told you informally, all of that affects how much pain and how, you know, problematic your birth is. Again, there's other physiological factors you cannot control, but there's proof that that all impacts the way that your birth experience goes. So, you know, everything from everything from creation of your worldview all the way down to how much pain you experience in childbirth or how much pleasure you experience in sex. This is all coming from, you know, these contextual cues over a lifetime. And that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to study because your contextual cues that have built are quite different than mine. And that's exactly what um, um, Greg was talking about earlier with epigenetics. It's based on your own life experiences, your own development, your own exposure to certain things. Yeah, it was, I just read um, the, I think it was called The Midwives. It was one of, it was like an Oprah book. And I, um, growing up, I don't know, my family had all gone to hospitals and everything. I hadn't even ever considered a midwife, but when I read that story, just having somebody explain why they liked it and just the the richness of it, 
just completely changed my mind about that being an important other way to have birth. Yeah, it was watching births in in West Africa that and kind of doing some reading because of the placebo effect research I was doing that had me, I gave birth to my daughter naturally. Now that's not for everyone and and I'm not one of those like hardcore, everyone needs to do it. Um, But just reading the research and diving into it, it's really, really fascinating how much and it's it's on purpose. your labor is supposed to stop if you're stressed, right? Think about on the Pleistocene, you know, you can't be out in the middle of the wild and like be giving birth, giving birth, you're so vulnerable, both you and your child. And so anytime stress is present, um, a lot of times labor will stop. And so understanding that relationship and then the process of the hospital and the process of which we give birth now, it's just a fascinating thing to kind of learn about your physiology in a modern world that that's kind of made not for your natural physiology, but that's kind of made um, as, as a system or an organization, right? For the so conveniency often, of business. Yes. yes. And so often <laughs> women will go to the hospital and then their labor stops and everyone's like, well, now we got to give her medicine, you know? So I'm not, I'm not a co- conspiracy theorist necessarily, but I just think so many of these things are affecting our health and we're not paying attention. What shape is the planet Earth, Chelsea? <laughs> it is in fact your house. Okay, all right. I, just make it, make it sure. I, I I know you've got an out an outline. Uh, we're we're coming up on an hour. I, I'm wondering if maybe we could reconvene another time and do more points on your on your outline if if you'd be open to that. Because that because there's one one question that I really want to explore with you, um, and it's something that that Celeste wrote on the the Patreon page before she came in. Uh, on this conversation about the book *Sapiens*, because the have you have you read *Sapiens*, Chelsea? Yeah, it's been a while, but yeah. Okay, um, because *Sapiens* had a huge impact on the way that I was able to put words <laughs> to how I felt about the church, Mormonism, religion in general, as being a net negative or net positive on society. Um, and and if if you remember the the thesis of sapiens is that the, the main advantage that homo sapiens had over every other species on the planet was the ability to communicate and weave these fictions that are able to bind groups together. You know, we're not like ants or bees or wasps that do that biologically. We do it through the fictions that we create, whether that's our laws, whether it's our currency system, whether it's our religions, there's these things that we create. And as a, a cultural anthropologist, you've studied a lot of those artifacts. As a biological anthropologist, I'm wondering if you also looked at how the human biology was impacted by hundreds and thousands of years of these kinds of fictions. And uh, Emil Durkheim talked about the sacred and the profane. Are you familiar with I'm, I'm assuming you would. Yeah. Um, and, and his prediction that... This episode, had, Glenn's the name dropper. Yeah, see? I am yeah, in Glenn, this one. And Mary Douglas. This time. Anthropologist Mary Douglas is actually great. Yes. Yeah. On this oh, topic. No yeah. Um, but, but that as society becomes more secular and less religious, that will also become more alone, suicidal, um, the, the connection that religion as one of these fictions that binds people together provided through hundreds and thousands of years as we reject that, 
there isn't really anything to fill because Durkheim called us homo duplex. We're, we're, we're on the individuals, but then there's also this, this group level. And that's that the sacred is the group level. The profane is the individual level. And, and so what fills the, the biological need that humans have for connection once you've rejected as a fiction, these fictions that have had this profound impact on our societies and our progress in the world and our, our own bodies, the way that we've evolved to feel safe and comfortable. I mean, I'm sure there's the giving birth in the middle of an open field in the Pleistocene examples that you could use for religion and the lack of religion in these fictions as well. Um, and that's something that's really interesting to me as we've all come out of Mormon. I mean, that's what this whole podcast has been, is that we've been coming out of Mormonism and picking the parts uh, picking it apart, and then I, I think of it as like Humpty Dumpty. You know, you, you you had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. How do you do that to get back to? I've rejected these things that connected me in to other people in the sacred. What do you? So I, I'm curious to hear you talk about that because I think there's a connection there as as well to the placebo and the expectations that we have, where we could. And we could even do nocebo effect where we think, oh, no, religion's just bullshit. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so we really kind of isolate ourselves from other people, at least with using the fiction of religions as a mechanism to do that. I, I wondered about, um, there's the fact that you've left the religion and you're not part of this story, but there's also the part, you know, to connect you together. But then there's also the part where, you are rejected because you're not believing anymore. Mm -hmm. Like with my own teenagers, uh, one in particular, um, like she doesn't talk a lot about, um, you know, kind of the social implications of leaving the church, but you know, she has like a different level of, of anxiety and, you know, a kind of like depress, depression sort of um, ideology than, than my other kids. And I, I have to wonder if it's, you know, the effect of, I, I mean, one of the things that I noticed that the kids bus stop was out just outside my uh, kitchen window and I would see the kids say hi to her, but their bodies would all be turned away from her and they would like say hi really quick and then you know their bodies would turn and I just I was like always wondering you know what is it is it because she's on social media and she's not as you know connected like a big gang of kids or or is it this kind of effect of you know being othered I just I don't know that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's start with your, your question, Celeste. Absolutely. The effect of rejection, ostracism, social discrimination, the biological effect of that as an individual and on groups and even epigenetically, there's some really good research on that, um, that it, 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 is, it has a physiological effect on your health. Um, going from having lots of social capital and kind of being in the middle of a group to being on the periphery or the outside, it's actually really, really painful. 
And one of the solutions is finding a different group where you're the center again, where you have social capital. And that's why often kids will, you know, in high school, especially, you know, they're part of the skater group or they're part of the sports group or they're part of the whatever, right? People kind of find their, their people through which they can share these, like almost like um, Glenn was saying earlier, these um, confirmation bias with each other and it feels safe and it feels comfortable and it feels like you can have social capital in that society. You're in the middle again, you're not on the outside. And that's why it hurts so bad to leave one culture and go to another is, is, oh, you're kind of having the rejection of leaving one and the rejection of the people who you know what their beliefs are, right? And you're still trying to get into this other group where you feel like you're a part of that and you can gain social capital. And some people, the rejection is so painful that they don't try to get, you know, remarried again, or they don't try to, to create a social network again, or they don't try to go out and meet friends, especially as we age, we're finding that people are lonelier and lonelier and that's having a bigger and bigger effect on our health and not just lonely, but also socially, socially isolated, which means they are just not alone all the time. They don't feel like they have, uh, five or six people in their life that really know them, really see them, really trust them, really love them. And that affects your health as well. So I think what's happening is people are so affected by the rejection that we're not continually moving on to form positive social groups. And that's the whole point of the feeling bad about rejection. It's, it's, So bad that instead of learning how to find the right group to be included, we're now just avoiding it altogether. And never before in society has that been so easy. So for example, let's think about living 200 years ago, you couldn't just ignore everyone around you. You couldn't just not go to school. You couldn't just play on your slate with a chalkboard, you know, and if you did, <laughs> I don't know, I'm trying to think of a phone equivalent. And if you did, you would kind of be seen as othered and weird and strange, right? And so, but you, you couldn't necessarily, uh, and that's even bullying had a mechanism back in the day. I'm not saying bring it back. Come on, I'm, I'm not evil. I just mean it has a mechanism to keep people in the middle, to keep people in the group. And as all of these things are branching out, we're kind of just allowed to be isolated because it's sometimes easier. And the whole point of that feeling, that unpleasant feeling of rejection is to teach you to find better friends next time or find a more trusted organization. It's just like when you touch a fire and it burns your hand, it hurts. That pain mechanism is there to teach you, don't do that again. And instead, I think people are feeling that pain and just never cooking. Does that make sense in a social metaphor? Yeah, you almost have to, I mean, I, I think about, like as I see my oldest son have a child and how they, they protect him so much. And, um, and I think about kids that are older, you know, were raised before, like you would have lots of little falls on the playground and lots of stuff like that. Um, and it seemed like um, it kind of, I don't know, helped you be able to try more things. Have you read Coddling, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind? No, it's on my list, though. Yeah. You, you, you just gave a nice summary of it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I probably would like the book. Yeah. 
So the whole point of this, you know, contextual layering is that that's just one point of it, right? The, that historical generational coddling of the American mind is just one of the layers that's affecting this generation. It's a different parenting style that we invented because we didn't like the parenting style of the people that came before us and they didn't like the parenting style of the people that came before us. And so this is our new kind of generational parenting style. And it's not in every family, obviously, but it's, you know, if you think bell curve wise, we are seeing generational similarities. And that is just one thing. Now add on the layer of, of internet and the fact that all of us who had access to information that was not controlled by the church, right? And then add on that a smartphone and then add on that Facebook and then add on that. And we're just seeing a very different social world. And each of those things is having an effect on us. Yeah. It's all it's all bringing us closer to the the next leap in evolution as uh, Homo sapien goes to Homo Deus, <laughs> which is the sequel to Sapiens, by the way. Although, Glenn, I still want to answer your question. So okay. I really thought that was fascinating. I think that um, the fascinating part about what you asked is, okay, if we somehow did an autopsy to see an what autopsy. my insides look like versus <laughs> someone on the Pleistocene, right, has these <sighs> these 300,000 years, has, has this, you know, 1.4 million, how far back do we want to go, has this social... Um, and cultural changes that we've experienced in modern human life had an effect on the body. And what we find is actually no. And I'll explain that because, well, yes and no. I mean, obviously we see epigenetic changes, but you could, you know, cut up someone 200,000, 350,000 years ago and me, and you couldn't tell. Um, there hasn't been that many biological shifts. And the reason for that is biological shifts take really long times generations to kind of weed out certain traits and have other traits magnify um, it also helps to be isolated it also helps to have some kind of catastrophe right if there was some asteroid and only people with certain lung capacity survived we would see that trait really magnified and that frequency would increase and we'd start to see that trait spread and the other traits die out so what happens with humans particularly is the invention of culture the ability to manipulate our environment the ability to create a knife meant that we didn't have to change our teeth as we ate different food right the invention of cooking meant that we have generalized dentition even though we eat meat and we're carnivores the event so all of these cultural things have actually are easier to spread they're quicker to make exactly what scott was saying earlier about cultural evolution it, it moves so much faster than biological evolution that humans have solved most of the problems they've encountered with cultural changes and cultural transitions. Uh, okay, so I've got, so I've got a question. see that on the body necessarily. Okay, yeah, the body, and it's that necessarily part that I want to explore. Because if, if you're saying that um, living in living in these, these small groups of like 150 people or less, for how, how, how long we live like that and we're socialized like that. And that there were certain learned behaviors and biochemical responses to, to things. Do those biochemical responses get passed down as like a tendency to be more easily triggered by someone turning their back to you and then you feel isolated? You know, or, or like you, you see certain gestures, you have certain feelings, certain biological responses that makes you act in a certain way, you, you pass those down to your, your children just by observation and learned behavior. 
but then is there also a biological something that's passed down so there are these instincts or traits and it's it's at the level of the instincts i don't know if you cut open a body and you do an autopsy where right. are you going to find the instincts where where are right. you going to find that to know if these instincts have been co-evolving with us over hundreds of thousands of years and that's where durkheim's um, yep. sacred and profane is existing, not in that, oh, we've got three hearts now. Yeah. Or like in the movie, Paul, three tits. That's awesome. <laughs> well, you and Celeste are great. So she talked about number five on oh, our list, which is reward punishment. That's and you great. talked about, you just talked about number six on our list, which was, is the fact that as humans gained ecological dominance, which means survival of the fittest was no longer about you know who could outrun a predator because now we built homes now we have shelter like you know we're able to manipulate our environment so much that nature is no longer controlling the mechanisms of natural selection so what is who survives who dies who lives who has a lot who has nothing it becomes social and so that's what you're talking about is people over time have developed the ability to um have their body affected by social interactions. And so we actually see different body systems co-opted. So there's a pain system and we see that co-opted by social pain and it works the same mechanisms. So we would see that same neural pathway in let's say an ancient human, but it's used differently. It's used for a different, we call that a byproduct of evolution. That same pathway is now used differently. It's in order to teach you how to be good socially instead of just physical pain so it's the same system but it's used in different ways yeah 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 Yeah, and 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 like artifacts and folklore um are like that too where you you could have like farmers that have certain tools that as the technology advances and those tools become obsolete the original function of those tools changes and they they, they still use the tools. It still has meaning, but it's doing something different for them now. You're talking about the biological equivalent of, of, of that in systems. Exactly. I, I, I've, I've got like a, a really annoying pedantic question for you. W- where is the, the line to divide between nature and social systems that are created by humans who are actually nature? Right. And that's that cyclical process. We, it's called cultural niche theory in, yeah. in, in neuroanthropology. It's just this idea. Is it for nerds? It's you know for nerds. Because I might get some nerd cachet in, in there. The humans make things that then have an effect on our body. It's a really fascinating cycle. Or, or that, even, that, that even the technology that we create is nature. And we are actually controlling our evolution because of the things we're creating. And yeah. that's the second part of your question. And I know someone was talking, um, but about the whole idea about religion and buffers. And, and there's actually some great research. It's only about a month or two old. So I don't know exactly how I feel about it. And I'm still kind of reading up about it. But it's this concept of, um, I think it's Nathaniel Humphrey, who was someone I studied a lot on the evolution of, of the placebo effect. Why would it have evolved, right? And he's one of those old ancient scholars that really studies that. that. And he has come out with this idea that religion was a buffer against suicide, that all major world religions have um, a proclamation against suicide or a punishment. Um, And that that was a meaning system, much like we talked about in the last episode, it was five years ago, but the Hmong system of the nocebo effect that causes Hmong people to have sleep paralysis that can lead to adult sudden onset death. Um, it's that negative 
negative thing where you don't have a meaning system to control it. Well, he's saying it's the opposite, that religion provided a meaning system that didn't make you feel hopeless, that thought you had life after this death, that um, gave you punishments if you didn't take your own life seriously. You know, all of these different factors of this meaning system that was actually a buffer against suicide. And as we get rid of religion because of its veracity, we're losing that buffer of, of meaning that kept us alive. Now it's a new argument, but it is interesting. And I'll say this last thing, and I know you want to talk, but the idea is whether, whether you like it or not, it's a good example of humans have created not just tools. We've created meaning systems. We've created fictions. We've created lots of different things instead of biologically evolving. We've yeah. created these things because it's easier to create that and affect our body than it is for our bodies to change. And this might just be one of the things we created. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know what his argument is, but just by the way that you were describing it, it sounds like he's taking a very late, feature that developed in religion like these control mechanisms and like putting them way 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 back in the past as if it didn't evolve to this point you, you know like uh, that we're like we've got a problem there's suicide how are we going to fix it oh we'll control people by letting them making them think that there's an afterlife you know like nah. <laughs> I well, don't know. well you, if it evolved yeah. over time like natural selection it doesn't mean someone's in charge of it what it means is that people who believed in an afterlife live longer and had more children than people who didn't, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of what it means. And that, that religions that, you know, had something against suicide, ten, those people tended to live longer and spread that message and whatever. You know, that's the idea. It's not that it's a purposeful thing. It's that suicide might have, those yeah. ideas might have led to yeah. greater survival among certain people. I, I enjoy debating things like this. So yeah. it's, it's fine. Go Utah's ahead, Scott. not doing well on the suicide statistics last Utah? Terrible. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking. Pretty bad. And, and they all believe in life after death, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the well, argument. Was, it's changing people's like belief is waning. Countries. Yeah, but I mean, that the idea that like the suicide, that like religion insulates against suidality does a belief in life yeah, after death know. facilitate suicide or prevent it? I guess it's what you think you're stepping into. Well, look at suicide bombers. You would argue that it facilitates it, right? So cases. you have to oh, – so, and this is, again, how important context is. Right, right, right. Yeah. So right, right. the other one we haven't – we've literally covered almost all of this stuff. The oh, really? other one we haven't talked about yet is that idea of perception. So the coolest part of the placebo effect, I think, is that it's not just about um, actualities. It has nothing to do with reality. It's your perception of that context. So they've been able to kind of show if you perceive that you're in a trusted environment, even if you're not, if you perceive and they'll interview before and after and they'll kind of, if you perceive that you're in a situation that's negative, you know, you'll find that outcome. And it's kind of how those, you know, the secret happened and self-fulfilling prophecy and all these ideas of your mindset will change what happens. There's some veracity there that your perception of certain um, contexts, just like we talked about, each layered effect, one of those, and the, one of the most powerful is your own interpretation of that yeah. context. And that has a major effect. And so you would see this idea of suicide, right? You would see a suicide bomber responding to that meme and those beliefs quite differently than let's just give an example, like a young gay Mormon 
kid in, in Harriman, Utah, where we've seen seven suicides last year, right? Um, that's a very different context for suicide just based on these two different cultures. Uh -huh. And that's literally something that we don't see in the animal kingdom very often, this idea of suicide, this irrationality. The human body and, and most organisms survive to promulgate, to spread. And we rarely see an organism that self um, destroys, self-destructs, right? Yeah, right? It's just not the way that we've ever seen. And for this to be spreading, and, and it's happened in different cultural contexts over time, but it is a- Because animals don't a, get married. That's what, that's what I always <laughs> tell my clients. Yeah. Wait, why? Oh, yeah? Because animals don't get married. There's no animals don't have to get divorced, so why would they shoot themselves? <laughs> I, I sent an email to the Infants on Thrones with a, a picture that this friend of mine made that's an artist. Um, and it's, it's like, I can't think of what the name of the little people are. You use them sometimes in like a, a play psychologist would use. But she... Here, uh, let me, I'll, I'll, put them on, I'll put them on the screen while you're talking about it. I didn't know how to do that. Yeah. yeah the, these pictures of these people with... Well, because these ones, these people are from Utah, so they have jello molds that they see the whole world through. It's this one right here? Yeah. What so are they? They're, they're, they're these little people, like here's a, a fireman and there's a, there's a teacher here somewhere. And if you see um, these up close, what this is, is a, it's a jello mold oh, how on their heads. So everybody... It's like rose-colored glasses, but it's yeah. green. Yeah, uh, they're from Utah. You know, they right. have, like they have to see everything through Jello. I got gotcha. you. So, so the so the rose rose-colored glasses for a Mormon is Jello. Can you yeah, actually, or, or not even rose-colored? It's yeah, just it like love that. It's hard for you to see the way somebody else does, or you know, like that idea of what's what's that thing in consciousness the. Uh, uh, that essay, uh, what it, what it's like to be a bat or, you know, just right. because of like yeah. how you are. Yeah. So, so, so you when know. you're talking about perception, when, when Chelsea was talking about perception, if you've got a certain worldview, yeah, that, you have that the jello you, somebody view. looking at you might go, well, you've got a green jello head on your head, but yes, seeing exactly. from it, it's just like, no, it just, everything's green and kind yeah. of blurry. It would be nice if that's how it is, you know, kind okay. of tell that. I love that. It's exactly true. The context you're born into is the, the, the perception in which you operate in the world, you know, and, and that can get bigger or smaller depending on what you have around yourself. And I think that, that you're, that's a hundred percent correct. You know, they always say, you know, people can't explain culture because it's like a fish swimming in water. Yeah. Fish doesn't know it's in water. And that's how, it, how layered and how impactful culture is that, we have all spent how many decades unpacking our culture and we still find things out every day that, oh my gosh, this totally had a big effect on me and I didn't think of it at the time. I just thought it was how the world worked, right? I, I get one of those revelations almost daily and, and kind of unpacking those layers of culture that really do um, change the way we live and see the world, I think are, are really important. Yeah. And, so and Chelsea, I, you know, I would say that some of those jello molds, some of those perceptions, some of those worldviews are more correct or true to the, <laughs> to the actual world than others. 
but they but the regardless of how true or accurate they are to the matching up with the outside world because they're all like if, if you if you take that david eagleman thing about the umwelt and how much we actually perceive yeah the, no way we're all getting an accurate view of what's really all out there but but that there are still some that are better than others but even the bad ones have a similar impact because of the power of perception i think that's where we get into these uh, cultural relativism and moral relativism right. arguments about like, well, no, but some things are objectively true. Some things are objectively false. Yes, outside of the jello mold, but try explaining that to somebody inside of the jello mold and it's not going it's, it's to be effective. That's why I'm such a science person in the sense of, I don't know, I, I, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything. And it, I think it's actually really depressing. I don't encourage anyone to go this direction. But I do find value in feeling tricked in my meaning system in the past. Like how dumb was I to be Mormon that I now feel like I won't. The only meaning system I've found that I can put my trust in is the scientific method because it has checks. It has balances. It has rules that, you know, it doesn't it's still it's still a jello mode. It's still another jello mold. But at least to me, that falsifiability, that, you know, verification, replication, that whole thing makes me feel like, okay, I can trust this idea until we change and then I'll change and we'll trust that idea and we'll test it. And it, there's some proof there. Every other belief is kind of, it could be anything. I don't know. You need All some right. new I, hobbies, I, Chelsea. Say that again, Scott? I don't know my hobbies. I just said she needs some new hobbies. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I now know, Chelsea, that the, the next throwback episode that I want to bring you on to comment on, and that's, that's what we did a couple of years ago on Rupert Sheldrake's band TED Talk, where um, he, he did, are you familiar with that? A band? I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, so, so he, he said there are, there are 10 dogmas of the scientific worldview that impact and limit what science is actually able to explore. And I was, I was really interested in exploring that idea of, you know, is that true? Are there the, but we really couldn't get past Randy on that one. <laughs> it, was a, it was still a fun episode. It was still a dream. But, it, but I'd be interested to have that conversation with you at some point. Yeah, it'll be fascinating. I, I kind of just like the idea that science will admit that it's wrong. And that's mm -hmm. been my issue with um, religion, right? And that's been my issue with, I, I, I don't have to be right. I just want, if we're not right, let's admit it, let's learn, and let's move on. Let's try to be the best we can possibly be. And I'm not meaning that in an, in an attitude or a progressive way. I mean, let's try to understand knowledge the best we can across cultures or throughout time. And that's as much as humans can do, but let's be pretty smart about it. With, with a big humility pill that, that there is much more that we don't know than that we actually do know. And the things that we don't know could impact the things that we think we know and just turn it on its head at any point. So let's not, let's not use that to like embrace the things that we know aren't right or aren't true, but and here's, that still is be We could all be destroyed open. tomorrow and all of this accumulated knowledge that this one species has acquired on this planet could be lost forever. It takes less than 10,000 years for the earth to regrow and, our presence to be almost unknown. That to me is the part that like, again, Scott's going to be like, you need to fucking get some hobbies. But that's what <laughs> me up at night is this idea. No, if there's no electricity, if there's no, how yeah. is this accumulated knowledge that is quite fascinating? If I was an alien anthropologist 
coming here. I'd want to study these modern people. And what really would we be studying? And would it be lost because it's all digital? And what happens when there's no electricity? And how are we saving this accumulated knowledge in a way that could possibly be read someday by an entirely different species? Or, or, or what happens when the aliens get here and everything that we do is Wi-Fi and they don't have the password and they don't even know what the frequency, they, they can't get the frequency, they, they can't access the cloud, but it's all right there. Right. They can't access it. Yeah. Poor aliens. I just mean, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't mean that you shouldn't worry about that or you shouldn't think about that. I just mean that, like, you're, you're expressing this sort of um, cynicism toward organizations, which I completely get. And I'm saying in terms of, like, our experience and what we're looking toward and trying to achieve, after leaving Mormonism and like losing all these ideas and beliefs and like you said, you know, you don't recommend it to anyone kind of a thing. I don't I don't feel that way. I'd recommend it to anyone and, and say you you then suddenly have so many other doors and things that are opened up in your life that that you can focus on and do you know, instead. Um that there's you know, you're talking about like, okay, so there's an asteroid that hits the earth and all of our culture is wiped out. So then, what's the point of it all? What's the meaning? Sort of like an existential void, right? That like that can all just evaporate. It doesn't doesn't ultimately mean anything if a hundred thousand years from now nobody can know who Darwin was because the Earth is going to get incinerated or something, right? Whereas, like I'm I'm coming at it more of like you're here, you're healthy, and it's right now. You gotta just enjoy it. Like that's all I mean by that. Can I um the the metaphor I've been thinking about lately is that we're all mice stuck in a maze, right? And when you're in a Mormon mouse in the 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 mouse that has the Jello mold, let's say, <laughs> running around, you don't know you're in a maze. And there's a level of simplicity and a level of you know the one choice that leads to millions of choices that you don't have to make. And there's just this level of, of simplicity, I think is the right word. And, and, and so many things are crossed off the list. When you take off that jello mouth and you're like, dude, I'm a mice stuck in a maze. Yes, we can push the pleasure button. That's what most mice die of. is just fucking pushing the pleasure button until they die. That's what mice do when they figure out they're stuck in a maze. Um, but there's also for me uh, an element of depression and despondency to just be like fuck it i'm a mouse stuck in a maze and now i know it and life is just kind of like okay i guess i'm gonna make the best of it but i'm gonna die and like i never really meant to exist and no one will ever know me and who cares you know yeah burning on a fuse up there alone I'm sure I'm not the only one, but you know, it's not healthy, but I also, it's kind of like any hardship, any, um, you know, after my brother died, I, I would tell people like, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, but I would not want to go back to the person I was before the, the, the stretching of your emotions, the understanding of depth and all that stuff. And I feel that way about the church. I would never want to go back, but if you're happy, I don't want to take you into this space. It's hard. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, we've done our 90 minutes. <laughs> All right. I've got, I've got more to say. I've got to bring you over from the dark side to the light side, Chelsea, but it's going to take some strategies. I know. I feel yeah, bad. I'm I know. like 
a positive well, person. And I'm like, dang. Have you been on a jet ski before, Chelsea? <laughs> it's pretty awesome. From like, paramotoring. I mean, people say you can't buy happiness, but with enough enough horsepower and fuel, it's, it's pretty hard to keep a smile off your face. It's yeah. true. And I have found marijuana and that makes me very, very happy. So I go. get it. There are pledge, but it, to me, that's just the mouse pushing the pleasure button and that's cool. But what's the difference? What's the difference? I don't know. Am I the only one? Does no one else feel kind of this cynicism about the meaning of life? I, I, I used to until I rediscovered God. Oh God. <laughs> now we're going to really need to continue. Oh, no. What, what, I, what I meant is until I rediscovered that all of us are God. Like string theory kind of stuff? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe no, something like that. I got into string theory. That's something I would say. He's not I, got, I, got, I got into string theory a little bit. I got out of it quick. <laughs> in and out. Yeah. In okay. and out. In and out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, but but we can, we can continue these kinds of conversations, Chelsea, either online or offline, if you're interested. I have to end on a more positive note. I would say that like I'm mentally and existentially exactly what Scott said, like cynical, but I'm actually more kind. I'm more compassionate. I'm less judgmental. You just I, get I, less joy out of it. I, no, 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 no. I think that. <laughs> I think that you know, if you know what effect you have on others, you're more careful. You're more careful with them. You're more careful with the way you talk to them. You're more careful with how you treat them. And I think that, you know, if we could all be a little more careful with each other, knowing what effect we have, um, that, that's going to make the world a better place. Yeah. That is the more positive note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Chelsea. Thanks for making an appearance, Scott. All right. Yeah, let's grab lunch. Later. Thanks, guys. Really and fun. and thank, talk, thank you for joining Celeste and Nick and John and Nathan's iPhone and others who were on before and have dropped off since. So. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye, you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to Intense and Stories.